morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, would you please settle our hearts here and help us to grasp the reality of the privilege that has been ours these last few minutes. The privilege that we have to know the name Jesus, to to know the significance of who He is, to have had His, His work in life and death and resurrection be brought to bear upon our sinful hearts, to have been brought to life by His Spirit, to have been brought into communion with You, reconciled to You, to have known fellowship with You in spite of all that we deserve. to hold in our hands copies of words that You've written to us, inspired by Your own Spirit. Lord, help us to grasp these things. These are real things, and we are in danger of taking them for granted. We pray that You would save us from that. Rescue us from amazing things that may become commonplace to us. What we're about to do, Father, is open Your Word together and hear Your Word preached. This too may become commonplace to us. I pray that You would rescue us from that. That we would hear You speak from Your Word this morning. That we would regard it as such. Your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Move us to love Jesus more, love one another more, leave this place with a great holy fervor to proclaim with our lives that Jesus is real, that He is the only hope for this world. We ask these things on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, our sweet brother, amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Our text this morning will be verses 9 through 12. And as you're turning your Bibles there, I would ask you to stand with me and we'll read these these four verses. Romans, I'm sorry, not Romans, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. 
and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You may be seated. I spent a a little bit of time over the last couple of days thinking over my life, the course of my lifetime, trying to think of another time when I can remember our culture being angrier or more overtly hateful. I couldn't think of anything. Now, I'm an extremely young man, so I didn't have a whole lot of history to work with, but I can't think of anything. can't think of a more obviously angry or hateful time than the one we're living in, and you really don't even have to read the news to be confronted with this. You can just go sit in the drive-thru and see people losing their minds over French fries. People are hateful over things that don't matter on top of things that, that do matter. And, of course, as biblically informed people, we know that hatred for one another has a, a more fundamental problem, which is hatred for God. All people are conceived with this implanted, deep, heart-level hatred for God. We hate God, and therefore we hate everyone created in God's image. And even though our world has recognized we have this hate problem, and the world is motivated to solve it, until we solve the God-hatred problem, the hatred for man problem, Solving that really is going to be a fool's errand, which means that we really have a tremendous opportunity here, and I I wonder how many of us have thought of it in those terms. Have you thought about this political, racial, COVID cauldron of tension as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the church? We have in, in front of us a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the life of the faithful disciple of Jesus Christ to shine. The, the life of the Christian is incredibly important to the mission of Christianity. This, this problem of hatred for God and hatred for people, we have the answer to it, which is the gospel. Jesus Christ, He reconciles man to God, and therefore He reconciles man to man. And our lives are so important because they validate that message. They prove that that message is true and that they show that God has been reconciled to man through Jesus Christ and makes man like Jesus. He he does this in the lives of those who repent and trust in Jesus. And so... To that end, God has invested Himself, and He has called us to invest ourselves in making sure that the life of the believer is a life of love. Now, our our temptation right now in, in the current climate may be to just shake our heads at the world just like everyone else is, and, and I have given into that temptation much in recent days. We may be tempted to join in the anger, but we need to consider this morning briefly Whose disciples are we? We're Jesus' disciples, right? Now, having gotten that straight, we need to think about what it then looks like to be Jesus' disciples, 
to be disciples of Jesus is to do what Jesus does, and that is to abound in love. And abounding in love, we demonstrate the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. Paul's instruction in this passage pushes us in that direction, both to understand the importance of abounding in love and to give ourselves to its pursuit. The disciple of Jesus Christ, the faithful disciple, like Jesus Himself, is marked by love. And so, if we are faithful disciples, there are going to be numerous things that are true of us. We'll see three of them this morning. And the first of those is that faithful disciples embrace the command to love. They embrace the command to love. Look with me again at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So Paul is making a theological statement here that's true of all believers. A more literal way of writing this would be, you are God taught to love one another. And this isn't just true of the church at Thessalonica. He could have said this of the church at Galatia or Colossae. He could have said it of, of Providence Bible Fellowship. It's true of every church. You are God taught to love one another. You, you, you as a believer have this God imparted awareness that love is the name of the game. This God imparted desire and ability to love. Everyone who's alive in Christ has this God taught ability to love. It's a product of the new birth. It's not how we're conceived but it is what we, what we derive as a result of having repented and trusted in Jesus. And that's why we're unique compared to the world. I want to read to you a few verses from the end of Romans chapter 1. I want you to listen to these and think of your former lostness and see if these don't sound like an apt description of our current culture. This is Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do those things, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now that's not just our culture, but that was all of us prior to our new birth in Christ. It's true of everyone who is, who is conceived in this human race. No matter what kind of external encouragement we receive in the form of promises, no matter what kind of external external discouragement we receive in the form of warnings, we cannot be anything other than that. We cannot love God. We can't love each other. We can only rebel. We're doomed in our fallenness. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness because man is in his fallen state. All of those things, haters of God, haters of one another, He's doomed. But all the wrath that we stored up for ourselves through our rebellious hatred, God sent His Son to rescue us from. We fast forward a little bit in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 3. We find Paul describing Jesus by this great theological word, propitiation. 
Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And that simply means that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for us. On the cross, Jesus suffered in our place to satisfy God's wrath for all of our sin, all of those acts of hatred against God and others. Jesus did more than that. Romans chapter 4, Paul describes that, that Jesus' own record of righteousness, His perfect obedience, this, this accumulated, his, his accumulated acts of, of righteousness in His life on the earth, all of that is credited to our account when we repent and trust in Him. So in Romans chapter 3 and 4, we have described this fantastic exchange that takes place in the life of the repentant believer. Jesus removes our sin and takes with it the punishment that goes along with it, and He gives us His righteousness and its reward. It's a fantastic thing. Further, He enables us to do what we could not do before, which is to walk or live as He lived in newness of life. That's in Romans chapter 6. Whereas we, we, we were enslaved to hatred and sin, in Christ, in the new birth, we are able to walk in newness of life, in righteousness, in love. We move forward even further in the book of Romans to chapter 8, we find that His Spirit lives inside of us, empowering us to increasingly put to death the deeds of the body and grow in the likeness of Jesus Himself. If we were to, to go backwards in the New Testament to the book of John, we find Jesus Himself shaping for us what it looks like to grow in His likeness. He talked in, in the, the book of John about this new commandment He gives. He says, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, the divine empowerment to love as Jesus loved and as Jesus commanded that's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says you are God taught to love one another. In, in that one sentence, he's got a world of gospel packed. You're God taught to, lo to love one another. He's not just talk talking about truths that we've been talk taught. He's, he's saying our hearts have been opened up by this miracle which is Christ's work in His life, death, and resurrection applied to us. We've been God-taught to love one another. Paul further writes in the next verse, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 4.10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. See, the Thessalonians, they excelled at this. If you remember from earlier in our series, Macedonia was this huge swath of land, and Thessalonica is just one city in it. And we don't know exactly what the Thessalonians were doing, but we know that it was getting around. Word was traveling throughout Macedonia and Achaia, according to chapter 1. Everybody was talking about the fact that these Thessalonians, they had this brotherly love thing nailed. And so Paul is saying here in chapter 4 that ultimately, ultimately, that's because of what God has done in every believer to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Those whom God has acted upon, they're transformed, they have new desires, new, new desires that are patterned after the love of Jesus. They embrace His command to love like He loves. It is a miracle of the gospel. 
So therefore, anyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ should be someone who has embraced His command and His lifestyle of love. If we're, if we're rejecting the command to love, we're rejecting discipleship. It's, it's just that plain and simple. Faithful disciples embrace the command to love. Secondly, they, they go beyond that. Faithful disciples also strive to abound in love. They strive to abound in love. Now, what's the difference between those two? Embracing the command to love and striving to abound in love. Well, by, by embracing the command to love, I'm talking about the work of God in us to bring us to spiritual life so that we have these new desires and we want to love. Striving to abound in love, by that I'm talking about our decision to give ourselves to growing in that love. So look with me now at the rest of verse 10. Paul writes, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And we we could more literally translate this, abound in love more. You're, You're doing great, Thessalonica. You're doing great, Providence Bible Fellowship. But abound, we, we, we urge you, it is urgent that you abound more in love. No one has ever arrived when, when it comes to this thing of love. No one's ever arrived, no one is ever perfect in love on this side of eternity. No matter the church, no matter the believer, there is always room to grow. And so even to churches like Thessalonica, Paul does not say, okay, you've got the love thing nailed, now move on to something else. Do you know why? Do you know why he never says anything like that? Okay, you you got love down, move on to something else. The reason he never says that is there is nothing else. This is is the Christian life. We've we've mentioned it numerous times in this study and others that every imperative of the New Testament gives shape to what it looks like to love as Jesus loved. To love is the broad umbrella under which the Holy Spirit has fit everything else that we find taught in the New Testament. So, when we go to Ephesians and we find things like, be angry but do not sin, and say no corrupting word but only the things which edify, those are ways of loving. And then our passage from last week where we were taught to pursue sexual purity, that's a way of loving. We go over to Colossians and we, and we, we, we see Paul teaching about, about putting away obscene talk and, and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Praying for gospel opportunities for yourself and others. Those are ways of, of loving other people. We go to James and, and we're, we're told to pray for the physical healing of other people. Those are, those are ways of loving other people. When James tells us to join in the affliction of orphans and widows, ways of loving other people. We go to Hebrews and, and we're told to pay much closer attention to the things that we've heard lest we drift away and, and to, to strive to enter the Lord's rest. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive to stir one another up to love and good works. All of these are ways of loving one another. They, they are ways of obeying the Lord's one command to love as He loves. Now, there is a theme in the New Testament that, that our, our love and its focus should be primarily upon those in the church, but we also find that that's not exclusively true. If you look back at 
chapter 3, verse 11, we find Paul praying this, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus make you increase and abound in love for one another, one another, and for all. And then in our current passage, we get down to verse 12, we have something that, that we like to call a purpose clause, which tells us why we should abound in love and why we should live responsibly. Look down at verse 12 in 1 Thessalonians 4. So that you may walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. So our love has in mind not only the saints, but also those outside And for those who are outside the church, our love has as its primary impulse that they would see the truth of the gospel. If we love people, we want them to see that Jesus is real and that He actually saves people. Now, how do we we communicate that most visually? Well, it goes back to the command, the great command that Jesus gave us in John 13 when He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you. The very next verse, he tells us that that command has a testimonial impact. He says this in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Jesus loves with this God-sized, unbelievably selfless love And so if we're His disciples, we do what He does. We love with that same kind of love. That's a kind of love that's impossible for fallen people. So when that kind of love accompanies a clear verbal expression of the gospel, it's a powerful demonstration that the gospel is actually true. We we say a phrase like this quite a bit, I'm only human. I'm only human. Or, or we'll say, give him a break. He's only human. Now, when we use the word human like that, we, we are using it to describe imperfection, right? And in a sense, there, there's nothing wrong with that because being human as we know it is, is only a very blurry picture of what God created it to be. But if we are as, as, as biblical as we can be in our thinking, humanness or humanity as God created it is actually something wonderful, virtuous, godly. It, it's kind, loving, perfectly imaging the Father. That's what God created humanity to be. Humanity as it's, at its essence is walking rightly in fellowship with God. And so when when Adam and Eve fell, humanity actually began to malfunction. And what we describe as being only human is actually humanity malfunctioning. We, We were created to love God and love one another. And being human, as God intended it, is doing that, not what we tend to think of as being human. And in that sense, Jesus is the most human person who ever lived. In terms of of God's perfect design, loving God, loving one another, we are less human than Jesus was. He's, he's, He's reconciling us to the Father and fixing our humanity. 
And so we could say that sanctification, this process of our becoming more and more like Jesus, is also our becoming more and more human, like the second Adam. Jesus is restoring us to humanity. This thing of growing in love is the lion's share of that restoration. Loving God, loving one another. This is what it is to be human as God intended it. And the world is incapable of that in their natural fallenness. So when they see us loving as Jesus did, that is, in a truly human way, as God originally designed, that seems unnatural, impossible, and it is to us. He's restoring us to it. He's bringing us back to it. It's it's a glorious thing to be human, and that's why the urgent wording is used here. Paul says, "We, we urge you. Do this more and more, and it's urgent for a couple of reasons. And the first should be obvious. Get get to, finally, what you were created to do to begin with. Love God. Love each other. Get down to what you were created for. Secondly, this is urgent because this is necessary to show people that Jesus does what He says He does. Get busy abounding in love so that the world will, will see that when we say Jesus saves, we mean it. When we abound in love, we're, we're calling all people. We're calling the church. We're calling the world to wonder at the work that God has done to save us from our fallenness and return us to a better Eden so that we can function as we were intended to love God and love one another. And only the gospel can do this. Only love proves it. So, Paul says, we urge you, abound in love. Now, to that end, every one of us have areas in which we can grow. There's always something to work on within the context of our pursuit of fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And I would, I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, always to think of it in those terms. You're pursuing growth in love within the context of your pursuit of fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Don't pursue holiness outside of pursuing the Lord Jesus. That is the gateway to legalistic death. So don't do that. But pursue Jesus, and in pursuing Jesus, Strive specifically to grow in particular areas of love. Last week we talked about growing in the particular area of love that we refer to as sexual purity. Another area that we might want to grow is grow in is the 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 area of forgiving people. So perhaps you have recognized in your own life that you tend to hold grudges. You you hang on to offenses when people wrong you. So. Perhaps you decide this morning that you're going to pursue intentionally growing in love in that area of your walk with Jesus, your growth in discipleship with Jesus, becoming like Jesus. Now, how might, how might you do that? I would say you do it very intentionally, and I would suggest that a place to start would be dive into the Gospels and look at what Jesus did. How, did. how did Jesus respond to people who wronged Him? It's a great primer, or primer. Sorry, Pastor Jason. Caught myself. Look at what Jesus did. And, and look at what Jesus taught. 
Jesus actually taught us what to do. He, he told us things to do in, in response to people who make themselves our enemies. He, 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 he taught us things to do and He reached back into Proverbs. He said, he said, do good things to your enemies. Feed them. Give them things to drink. That's Proverbs 25, 21. He also said, pray for them. Pray good things for them. Pray all the blessings of heaven, heaven down on them. Listen, spiritual growth, the kind of spiritual growth that, that Paul talks about here, growth that abounds, it is intentional. It is not haphazard. So, so make a plan and dive in. You, you, you may not know how to do that, and, and what I've just suggested is too short of, of an example to be helpful to you. If you don't know how to make a plan to, to grow in a particular area of love, I'm inviting you right now, I'm asking you, and I'm saying, please, email me. I will connect you with someone who can help you, connect you with somebody. They'll sit down with you, and they'll help you make a plan to grow in a particular area of love, those areas of love where you feel like you need it most. And we'll all just we'll, we'll, we'll begin growing in love intentionally, as Paul says here. Because faithful disciples strive to abound in love. Finally, faithful disciples aspire to live responsibly. They aspire to live responsibly, verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, he shows us here a particular way of loving. Now, this is, this is a call to be ambitious, but it, it's not ambition like we typically think of. There's a particular kind of ambition, ambition to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our own hands. It's, it's ambition to live responsibly. Now, before we talk about the, the manner of the ambition, I want to talk about its purpose. He gives us two here, and the first is, the first, the first purpose is to walk properly toward outsiders. Responsible living is a good testimony to outsiders. To live irresponsibly is a poor testimony to outsiders. And again, the reason that we should care is we love them. We want people to believe the gospel. So we want to, we want to live responsibly. Secondly, by living responsibly, we are a benefit to the church in that we are not a burden to them. The church is to be all about generosity, but it's not to be a place that accommodates laziness. If we read the New Testament closely, we, we, we see that able-bodied Christians should be the hardest working people in the world, and they should take care of their own family members. We should work so hard so that the church doesn't have to take care of us, but can be generous to those who truly need it. So the, the ambition here is, is motivated by a desire to be a good testimony to the world and be a benefit to the church. Now, what exactly are we commanded to be ambitious about? Again, in verse 11, he says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, when, when, I, when I read this, I cannot help but think about social media and, and what it has meant to the way humans behave. Now, the things that I'm about to say are not to condemn social media itself, but the way that it has moved us to behave. So I'm, if, if you're on social media, I'm on social media. It's, it's not inherently sinful. There are beneficial aspects to it. But it has also provided 
perhaps the most effective tool in history for irresponsible living in several ways. We're at the point with social media where in the minds of many, you are only as alive as you are opining on everything under the sun. Many people don't mind their own affairs, but they mind everyone else's affairs. And in a sense, we're inviting everyone to make our business their business because many of us can't have a private thought without publishing it to the world, no matter how inconsequential. I mean, never has the average person said so much and heard so little. Now, I, I, I truly believe what I'm about to say. I'm not going to ask you to take it at face value, but I would ask you to think about it. Think about it this morning, I mean this afternoon. I believe we are the least productive people in the history of the planet. And I think it's largely because of what we have done with social media because of the seeds in our heart addressed by Paul in this text. There wasn't social media In Paul's day, the seeds of the heart were there. And those seeds, the sinful compulsions to tell everybody what we think, to put our noses where they don't belong, to be lazy, to those tendencies, Paul writes here, very very literally, he says, be ambitious. Be ambitious to be quiet. Be ambitious to mind your own business. And be ambitious to work hard. Be ambitious to live responsibly, even if you're the only ones. Now, these, these, these three things go together, but I'd like to take them one at a time just to think about them a little bit. Be ambitious to be quiet, or, or we should say, we, we, we could say, we could call it responsible speech. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean be quiet, period, because the, the Bible commands us to talk, right? We're supposed to share the gospel. And on occasion, we're to confront one another when we see dangerous things in one another's lives. This doesn't even mean don't have an opinion. It simply means understand that there are ramifications to speech, and we should weigh those carefully and use our speech where it matters. If we are responsible with our speech, we won't feel a compulsion to insert our opinion into every nook and cranny we can find. We won't... We won't busy ourselves with meaningless talk, just just adding to the noise, but we'll be very judicious with our words. James provides for us something that that the world would consider a revolutionary idea, something quite countercultural. He calls us to be quick to what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Is, is, is there anything that could be more opposite to the way that, that our culture communicates? Our, our world is slow to hear. We may even say, say loathe to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger, quick to be offended. What if, what if the modern evangelical church decided to be revolutionaries in that we decided to be capable of sitting through an entire cup of coffee and just listening? to the person that we're sitting with? What if we decided to be the cultural rebels who are going to live as if it wasn't our birthright to give an answer before we hear? You know, that's from 
That's from Proverbs 18.13. Proverbs 18.13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, to him it is folly and shame. We live in a culture of shameful fools, and we might, we might even say that much of the church is composed of shameful fools to, in, in that way. What if we followed James and went against the grain? James is, is just taking a bunch of Proverbs and he's condensing them down to one verse. He's taking, he's taking Proverbs like Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Taking Proverbs like Proverbs 17.27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his, his own eyes, but a wise man listens. James is taking all of those and he's, he's putting them in one verse. So we could, we could just condense it all down to James or we could just take what Paul says here, which is be ambitious to be quiet. Be responsible with your speech and, and in that way love everyone around you. I, I'm guessing that I'm not the only one that has noticed about our culture that you've got about a 10-second window of somebody deciding whether or not what you're saying is going to be something that they disagree with before they stop listening to you. You've got about 10 seconds with somebody. Since that's the case, why don't we keep our powder dry on everything but the gospel? Let's just be quiet on everything but the things that matter so that even though we know they're likely going to turn us off, at least they're going to turn us off after something that matters. They're at least going to hear us say something like, Jesus saves before they, before they flip the switch on us. Wouldn't that be great? Why don't we save those 10 seconds for life-changing words? Let, let's love by being responsible with our speech. Paul calls us also to aspire to mind our own affairs. This is, this is closely related to responsible speech. It's very literally, do your own thing. That sounds very modern, doesn't it? I kind of wish the, the, the modern translators had just written it that way. Do your own thing. Be busy about what the Lord has put in front of you. Don't exer- get exercised about other people's business. Now, we, we hear the phrase, mind your own business, and we actually think of it as the opposite or the, the negative side of that. We actually think of it as get your nose out of, out of other people's business. And the, the, the negative is implied, but think of it as the positive command that, that we actually see in the text. Your affairs, your responsibilities, your business, do those things. Dedicate yourself to those things. If, if we have time to be in the middle of every issue, making our thoughts known on everyone else's business, that's a good intention, a good indication that there's probably some things that are disordered in our own lives, and therefore we're being a bad testimony to the world. Responsible speech, well-ordered lives. Paul's calling us to these things. He says, thirdly, aspire to work with your own hands. And this simply means responsible work. Be productive. Produce things. Provide for yourself and your family. Don't be a burden on society and the church. It's, it's unloving and a poor testimony to be a drag on the other people around you. Be a producer, Paul is saying. 
There are a host of Proverbs to that end too. I want to give you just one to, to meditate on this morning. I, I don't, I'm not even going to explain it to you. I want you to think about what it means. This is Proverbs 18.9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The faithful disciple strives to abound in love. Among other things, that requires us to live responsibly, too ambitious to be quiet, to mind our own affairs, and to work hard. We live in a very dark world. It's always been dark. It seems darker right now, right? We are unique in that we actually have hope. We have it. And we, we may have been lamenting much recently, and, and some of that is, is appropriate for, for sure. But let us seize the gospel opportunity of this hour. The world is ripe for a countercultural message of God's redeeming love from a people who can not only articulate it, but live it effectively. I mean, what an opportunity is before us. And, and what if it started with Providence Bible Fellowship? What, what if Providence, what if, what if we were the most loving people in this community? And what if that looked like our being the, the hardest to offend people in Cincinnati? The hardest working people in Cincinnati? The most committed to minding our own affairs? The most reserved in our comments on the vast majority of issues so that on the main things we can be heard. What an opportunity we have. Why don't we seize it? Why don't we seize it? Why don't we believe that the gospel is the answer and seize the day by abounding in love to the end of gospel proclamation? Let's abound in love as faithful disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a kindness that you have revealed yourself to us. That you've allowed us to know Jesus. We we remembered, Lord, what it was to, to be mired completely deep in hearts of hatred for you and rebellion against you. We remember what it was like to be motivated only by hatred for one another, and yet you rescued us from this. And you reconciled us to yourself. And we, we remember those, those, those first days of, of new desires and love. And we're so thankful for that, Father. We pray that you would take this text and work it, work it hard into our hearts. That we would take what you have done in us as people God taught to love and that we would would decide that we're going to be people by your grace and power and kindness. We're going to be people who abound in love. That we are going to be people 
who demonstrate that the gospel is true. God saves hateful sinners. He transforms them into loving saints. Lord, let us be those kinds of people. Let it start today. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.